Our reading this morning is taken from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 10, and then verses 31 and 32. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they could no longer see anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. Because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Uche. And uh, good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, please, uh, would you turn to the passage that we've just had read? Mark chapter 9. And as Stephen said, today we're starting a new series as we turn to face Jerusalem and begin to prepare our hearts for Easter. And our theme today is uh, mountaintop experiences. But let's pray. Lord, we pray today, by your Spirit, you would open your word that we might see wonderful things. And we pray you'd open our hearts and our minds to see the wonder of you, Lord. So we pray, come Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, my girth disguises the fact that I spent my 20s and 30s up mountains having all sorts of experiences. In fact, it was in the Swiss Alps many years ago that God told me that I was to get ordained rather than pursue what was then beginning to open up a, a career in academia. On Helvellyn at Christmas, I sat in the snow and fed a field mouse. 
And on Ben Nevis, I tore a ligament in my knee and it took three hours to get up and about seven hours to get down leaning on my beloved Tiffany. I've been leaning for 33 years. And on Scarfell Pike, I got to the top, huffing and puffing and sweating, only to see a six-year-old girl in a pink onesie (laughs) jumping around fresh as a daisy, all rather humiliating. But in the Bible, there are several significant mountaintop experiences. The Garden of Eden is said to have been built on the mountain of God, according to the prophet Ezekiel. Noah's Ark came to rest on Mount Ararat, and the floodwaters receded, and peace and a promise came. Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Moriah, uh, and there the Lord provided a sacrifice. And centuries later, millennia later, the Lord himself would provide another sacrifice for the sins of the world on that same mountain range. Moses met God on Mount Horeb, and there received the Ten Commandments. David built Israel's capital city, on the mountains of Jerusalem. There built his throne on Mount Zion. And Elijah confronted all the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and demonstrated that Yahweh is Lord. I've also preached on that same mountain, although it didn't have the same effect. (laughs) The English poet and uh, illustrator William Blake He wrote this, great things are done when men and mountains meet. And here in our reading today, we see that great things are done when God and mountains and people meet. And so I want to invite you today to come up a couple of mountains. And firstly, let us go to the mountain where Jesus was transfigured. Verse 2 of our reading, it says, Jesus led Peter, James, and John up a high mountain. Some people think that this is Mount Tabor, uh, but that's uh, in Galilee, and that's really just a hill. It's almost certainly Mount Hermon in the north of Galilee. Part of it is now uh, in Syria. And it's Israel's highest peak, 2,800 meters, nearly eight thousand feet and Hermon means sacred and this was a very ancient and a very sacred mountain a very ancient and sacred religious site archaeologists have actually found over 20 temples and uh, locations for the worship shrines on this mountain that was devoted to the worship of the god Baal the storm god associated with fertility and the god who so often led the people of Israel astray and away from Yahweh. And there are caves on this mountain with paintings of Baal, this storm god. It was believed to be the mountain where Baal, this false storm god, lived. Ancient myths actually claimed it was the gateway for heaven. An ancient myth said that um, 
fallen angels came to earth on this mountain. And there they came and had relations with the sons of men. And they produced the Nephilim, the giants of old. In the fourth century, Jerome said that this mountain's name was Anathema. It was cursed. So here is this pagan mountain. And the Lord Jesus takes his three best friends up it to the palace of Yahweh's nemesis Baal, the portal of demons, a demonic stronghold where they're evil giants, a pagan high place. The enemy's turf. And Jesus takes them up there to reveal who he is and to show them who's the daddy. And in verse 2 we read, and he was transfigured before them. Invariably, mountains humble humans. But here the mountain is humbled by Jesus. Israel's greatest mountain, her highest peak, blushes and bows low before Jesus. Now the word translated transfigured is metamorphuo, from which we get our word metamorphosis. Meta meanings change and the morph bit meaning form, the change of form. But actually, Jesus is not changing his form here. He is simply being revealed as he is, as he was before his glory was veiled in humanity. Here he is revealed and disclosed in this epiphany, this manifestation, this revelation, this disclosure. This is who he is. This isn't something superficial that comes upon him. This is a take, tearing apart, as it were, and a disclosure of who Jesus is. This one who is so meek and humble and laid in swaddling clothes in a manger. This is him as he is, revealed in all his glory from all eternity. Literature has always loved this motif of ordinary people with extraordinary powers. Greek literature has all sorts of heroes and heroines. Yesterday I was listening to Radio 4 and they were interviewing a comic who's starring in a new Disney movie about to come out, all about 20-somethings who have these supernatural powers. We love that motif. Famously, Bruce Wayne, was a bi- the businessman, was Batman. And Clark Kent, the journalist, is Superman. And Strider, the ranger, is Aragorn. And Jesus of Nazareth is the eternal son of God, the creator of the universe, the logos, the word, the rationalizing principle of it all, made flesh and dwelling among us. And here we see the meek carpenter from Nazareth is the high king of heaven. And he's showing off He's showing us himself in the context that symbolized the demonic, wicked powers. And there, divinity unzipped shows us who is in charge. God incognito, 
God on the down low, now on display in his divinity and glory and majesty and blazing purity, splendor and wonder. And we need to come to this mountain. We've got to keep coming back to this mountain to see who he is, to see how he is. Only when we realize and recognize that, that we can respond rightly. The Holocaust survivor Viktor Frankl once wrote, the angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of divine glory. And we need to get lost in a bit of that. And we need to come and see God, as it were, unveiled here. Peter, James, and John, they get a glimpse here of what the angels knew all along. And it probably sucked the breath out of them. It certainly made Peter act all giddy and weird and silly. And say, oh, let's build a booth so we can just hang out here a bit, you know. But their vision of Jesus needed expanding. And our vision of Jesus needs expanding. So often he's just a kind of petite, portable, personal God that we keep in our pocket and whip out for a prayer when we're in trouble. But we need to realize and recognize who he is and how he is. It says in verse 3, And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And the gospel writers just struggling here to convey this. This is written by Mark. Mark is actually writing Peter's gospel. This is Peter's memory, according to one tradition, ancient tradition, papyrus tradition, late first century. He's telling this to Mark. And Mark's recording what Peter is trying to remember and frame and articulate. And so he's just piling words. There are four descriptive words here, trying to, 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 to express something of what Peter saw in that moment. Reminds me of that old advert in the Harpic Bleach one. Some of you remember that, white and shine. Remember that? And then there was Purcell, white of whites. And what about Daz? Washes whiter than white. It washed blue, actually, but washes whiter than white. And that's what we see here. Jesus, whiter than white, intensely white, radiant, whiter than bleach could bleach it. The Arabs call Hermon the snowy mountain. Third of the year it's covered in snow and much of the snow melts and then feeds the Sea of Galilee down through the Jordan. But, you know, people actually drive to this mountain even today from Jerusalem to go skiing. But Jesus brings them here so they can go see in and then they can see what he's like. And I wonder if Jesus, I can't quite work out the dates, I wonder if Jesus took them here when there was still fresh snow on the ground. Did he trudge up this mountain covered in snow and there, surrounded by all this fresh, fallen, beautiful white snow, he is revealed in all his glory, outshining the snow. Verse 4 says, Elijah with Moses appeared. We read that and say, whatever. But this is Elijah and Moses long gone. These are the two greatest figures of the Old Testament. 
And uh, Moses, he represented the law because he was the bringer of the law. And uh, Elijah represents the prophets. And both of them come, the writer of the law, the leader of the prophets. And they come, as it were, to point towards, to honor, to show that Jesus is the fulfillment that they had long expected. The pagans, as I said, believe this is a thin place where demons came. But instead, we have the greatest figures of the Old Testament and they come and they honor and they affirm and they vindicate and elevate Jesus before the disciples. The great storyteller Aesop said, a man is known by the company he keeps. And look at the company the Lord Jesus keeps. The prophet of prophets in the Old Testament the bringer of the law and the one who brought Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. These two greatest figures traverse time and space and come to honor Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. Here he is, the son of God. And then we read verse seven, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my Beloved son, listen to him. Clouds, as we know in Scripture, often indicate the presence of God. God revealed and yet conceals himself in a cloud. His imminence with people, but also his divine transcendence. Clouds of God's presence led Israel through the wilderness. A cloud descended upon the Ark of the Covenant in the temple at its dedication. And it was believed that um, the cloud of God's glory left Israel when Israel were taken because of their sin into captivity in Babylon, and the words Ichabod were written over the temple. That means the glory is gone. And the rabbis taught that the glory would one day return when the king of kings came. And here on this mountain, the cloud comes down and God speaks. And to all the ancients, they would have known exactly what that represented and typified. The glory is back because God's king is here. And the voice speaks, this is my beloved son. This is my much-loved son. Listen to him. Jesus has often spoken about my father. But here we see the father say, my son. A few days before this, down at Caesarea Philippi, another pagan center where there was actually a cave called the Gates of Hell and Jesus in front of it showed who he was and said, I'll build my church and the Gates of Hell won't prevail against it. Jesus in that context has said to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, oh, some say the prophet, some say John the Baptist. And then Jesus asked the question, yeah, but who do you say that I am? This question he addresses to us, who do you say that I am? One thing to know what other people think, but you've got to know what you think. You've got to come to that place where you're able to say this is who he is. And Peter says, you are Christ, the son of the living God. So there's been this affirmation and this testimony. Jesus didn't say you're wrong, he said you're right. Blessed are you, for this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. 
And then here we see the Father affirm. Jesus had put the question and the Father gives the answer. This is my son. Different people have different opinions, but the one that really matters is what God says. And God says, this is my son, and you're to listen to him. I think it's interesting that there are, that in Hebrew, the, the number three represents completeness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It's an idiom for perfection. And there are the three disciples who come as witnesses to the threefold witness of Elijah and Moses and the Father. It's a kind of perfect presentation that says fully and unequivocally that this is who he is. It's a mountain where Jesus is transfigured. They get to see who he is. And we need to come to that mountain. Some of you know what other people think. Some of you have got your own thoughts, but they're developing. But we need to come to this mountain, and we've got to see who Jesus reveals himself as, who the Father says he is. He's not just a good man. He's not just a great teacher. He's not just a wonder-working miracle man. He's not just one who empathizes with us because he was born poor and brought up lowly. All of that is true, but he is the eternal Son of God. And as such, he is worthy of all our allegiance, all our affection, all our love, and all our commitment. We must listen to him. We can't have a pint-sized Jesus in our pocket. He is God. And then secondly, I've only got two points. Let's come to the mountain where Jesus is transfixed. No sooner has the cloud of God lifted and the two witnesses disappeared back to their eternal heavenly dimension that Jesus turns and heads back down the mountain. Peter says, let's just hang out here. This is awesome. And Jesus said, I've got work to do. We can't just stay here. There'll come a time where we stay in the glory in heaven, but until then there is work to be done. In fact, there's a, a, a boy down the mountain who's severely troubled and the disciples can't heal him and Jesus has got to go down straight from the mountain into this situation where he sets the boy free. There's work to be done. But there's another mountain that needs to be climbed. And a hundred miles away south of this mountain is Golgotha, is Calvary, is the mountain range on which Jerusalem sits like the kind of cushion in a crown. And on one of those hills, Jesus will be crucified in just a few months. In just a few months, the climax of the ages will come there. And this mountain of transfiguration is preparation for the mountain where Jesus is transfixed. Mark 9, verse 9 says, And as they were coming down the mountain... All that glory, as it were, still in their mind and their memory, unforgettable. Jesus charges them, don't tell anyone what you've seen just yet. Until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. I think they probably said, what? What did he just say? Is he talk, what's, he, what's he on about? To, rising from the dead. We've been with God and Moses and Elijah on a mountain and glory. And What was that about? Did he just say that? 
They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what does it mean that he's going to rise from the dead. Jesus ministers and then later begins a discourse and he keeps bringing them back to it. They've got a view that it's all going to be glory all the way through now, but he keeps bringing them back to the reality that he's going to the agony of Calvary. Verse 31, the son of man, he says, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, the fellowship of the ring minus Gandalf have been refreshed and are in the idyllic Rivendell. And there convened, actually I think Gandalf is still there at that point, there is convened the Council of the Ring to determine the fate of Middle-earth. And Elrond, the ruler of the elves, says this, the ring bearer is setting out on the quest for Mount Doom. And on him alone is the charge laid. And from the Mount of Transfiguration, even as Elijah, even as Moses and the Father come, the reason for their coming, I think, is to steal, as it were, to strengthen Jesus to prepare to go to that Mount Doom. Because on him alone is a charge laid. And that there he must become the sacrifice for the sins of the world. The meeting on the mountain is not just old chums. It's not just an epiphany for the disciples. It's not just for us to know that he is glory zipped up, uh, fully divine and majestic. It's not just for Jesus to be affirmed as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. On Mount of transfiguration, Jesus is being prepared and steadied and strengthened. There's a veil over what was said, but the law and the prophets point to the fact that one day there must come a sacrifice for the sins of the world. A lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. And they were coming to affirm Jesus because that is who he is and why he came. And he leaves the one mountain to go for the other. Reinhold Messner was perhaps the greatest mountaineer of all time, still alive, but very old now. Others have beaten his record. They've done it faster, like the, the wonderful Gurkha Nims, but his was the first ascent of Everest without oxygen, the first ascent of all 14, 8,000 meter peaks. And Messner says this, mountains are dangerous. Mountains are dangerous. And he knew that personally because his brother died in a tragic mountain accident. But Jesus' death would be no accident. It was willed and intended. And after this high peak, high moment display of his glory, he's now going to set his face for Jerusalem. And the Mount of Transfiguration prepares for the Mount of Transfixation. On the Mount of Transfiguration, literally the word means Jesus is seen through. Form is seen through. But on the other mountain, he will be pierced through. And after the Father has affirmed, this is my son, 
Jesus speaks, yeah, but you need to understand the Son of God is the Son of Man who will suffer for the sins of men. And the disciples are in awe, but they're also confused that Jesus is talking like this. But darkness will soon have its hour, and in terror they will deny him and run from him, who they'd seen manifesting glory. And he will be handed over to the Gentiles and falsely accused and unjustly sentenced and brutally beaten and cruelly murdered. And there in the mystery and the economy of God, ah, the punishment for our sin is put on him. And his death becomes the death of deaths and the death for us. And when we trust in him, the benefit of his death is applied to us and we're forgiven. I read this week, just happened to be reading in the news of how many people were being rescued at the moment on mountains, Ben Nevis and Snowdonia. Already this year in the climbing season, 200 people have been rescued on Mount Everest. And Jesus is the mountain rescue team, only he does it solo. And he rescues the world by not allowing himself to be rescued. He could have called a legion of angels and been saved. But he willingly and freely of his own volition goes to the cross and there dies for us. Transfixed. What does that word mean? It means pierced through. Transfixed for us, pierced for us, held to Golgotha's rough-hewn gibbet by rough-hammered nails. And in that twisted pain, there is the selfless love. And he did it freely. There was no other way. And he did it for us. On Mount Hermon, the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is clothed in glory. And here at Golgotha, he is stripped naked and covered in shame. And on Mount Hermon, he is white with purity. And on here, he is stained with the sins of humankind. And on Mount Hermon, the saints are there to honor him. And at Calvary, they come to mock and ridicule him. And on Hermon, there is heaven's bright cloud coming and the affirmation of the Father, this is my son. And at Calvary, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? This is why. Christ's mountaintop experience at Calvary is for our mountaintop experience. And Jesus' mountain of transfixation is for our mountain where we are transformed and transfigured. And Jesus goes to Calvary, as it were, so we can come with him to that high mountain where God is of glory. C.S. Lewis in an essay, Till We Have Faces, an unusual story, but he has this wonderful line. He says, the sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain and to find the place of beauty where beauty comes from. All my life the God of the mountain, says Lewis, has been wooing me. All my life I've longed to go there, that place where beauty comes from. 
and all my life the God of the mountain has been wooing me. Easter is several weeks away, but he is wooing us from that mountain, wooing us in order that we might come to him and trust in him and be forgiven of our sins and cleansed and made right with him and then clothed in his glory. Amen.